Hello and welcome to this special edition of Salt and Light Radio. I'm Pedro Guevara Man. Today on Salt and Light Radio, we join Rabbi Aaron Flansreich of the Beth Shalom Synagogue in Toronto, Salt and Light's Father Thomas Rosica, and Justin Trottier of the Free Thought Association of Canada for a special panel discussion on the afterlife. I hosted the panel in March 2012 at the Beth Shalom Synagogue in Toronto. Welcome all and hello and welcome to Beth Shalom Synagogue. My name is Pedro Guevara Man. I'll be the host for tonight's evening, although our real host is sitting to my left here, but I'll be moderating the conversation as well. I'd like to welcome those of you that are joining us online at saltandlighttv.org. Um, our three panelists, Father, f Father. I am a father. See, I'm already, already confused. Rabbi Aaron Flansreich, he's, he's a senior rabbi here at Beth Shalom. He's also the real host of this evening. He's going to make sure that there is dessert for everybody, not uh, in a few minutes. It is a synagogue. There will be cake. Justin Trottier, is, Justin Trottier is joining us. He's with the Free Thought Association of Canada. And Father Thomas Rosica with Salt and Light Television. I'll be doing a little longer introduction before each of them will start. Each of them will do a brief presentation of the teachings of their faith tradition or their personal beliefs on the afterlife. What will happen to us when we die? Now, heaven is one of those words that whether you believe in it or not, or whether you even know what it means or not, has kind of crept into our daily usage. You know, we say things like, oh, for heaven's sake, or uh, heaven only knows, or we watch movies like heaven can wait, or uh, all dogs go to heaven. We listen to songs, uh, Stairway to Heaven, or we dance to, those of you that are older, um, I'm in heaven. Um, uh, TV shows, Seventh Heaven, uh, uh, Highway to Heaven. But what is this idea of heaven or the afterlife? Is it a place? Is it up in the sky? Is it a state of being? Is it a state of mind? Is it inside of us? Um, is it a fantasy? Is it a legend? Is it a children's story? What is heaven? And so these are some of the questions that we hope to address tonight, and maybe, if we can, come up with some answers. Um, the Talmud says that, I mean, whether you believe it or not, or believe in an afterlife or not, that the world to come, in the world to come, we will dance a hora with God in the middle. And again, whether you believe in it or not, that's certainly uh, an idea, an image, of the afterlife that I'd like to subscribe to, because dancing the hora uh, is kind of fun, even if you have to do it forever. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but anyway, hopefully we can get to some of these questions, questions about eternal reward or eternal punishment, etc. So hopefully uh, as many questions as you have as we can address. So before we begin, I guess maybe I'll explain. So we'll start with a uh, brief uh, opening comment, brief opening commentaries from each of our panelists, and, uh, and then we'll just open up the floor. Um, so we'll start with Rabbi Aaron. Uh, rabbi Aaron Flansreich, he's, he's a senior rabbi here at Beth Shalom. Um, he's an American. He was born in Brooklyn, New York. Um, he attended Bar Ilan University in Ramat Gan, Israel, where he was, was also admitted into the university's prestigious advanced Talmudic Institute. Since being the senior rabbi here at Beth Shalom, Rabbi Aaron instituted a kosher food bank, a summer work program for Jewish teenagers, and assisted in implementing the Out of the Cold program for the homeless. 
Um, he's also past president of the Toronto Board of Rabbis and former chair of the Christian Jewish Dialogue in Toronto. During his tenure at the uh, Christian Jewish Dialogue, he was instrumental in bringing the interfaith program Walking God's Path, uh, Walking God's Paths to Toronto for the first time. And Rabbi Flansreich is also a frequent guest on TVO, Vision TV, and the CBC. So he gets and around. And salt and light. And salt and light. Yes, absolutely. So um, can I start by asking you a question? Absolutely. Will you, do you think you'll be going to heaven when you die? Well, hopefully not tomorrow. <laughs> you know, it's like the uh, old story where they, um, they say to somebody, the good news is, is that they play baseball in heaven. The bad news is you're starting pitcher on Thursday. <laughs> so hopefully it's not the case for me. Um, do I expect to go to heaven? You know, the, one of the mistakes that I think we often make when we talk about uh, the afterlife, when we speak of heaven or what's commonly referred to um, in Hebrew, and there's a few different expressions, I'll share one with you, and that is olam haba, which literally means the world to come, but of course even that is subject to interpretation as to what precisely that means. But one of the critical mistakes that we all fall into is a sense that we try to be so specific or literal with it. And so I'm going to turn it backwards for you to help you understand what I mean. And that is, before you came to this world, could you have possibly imagined what the mountains looked like, or what water felt like, or what sushi tasted like? There's no way you could have imagined it. And so when we speak or think about an existence that is not of this, to use spatial realities as up or down, this or that, in some way robs us of the understanding of what it potentially might be. Nabokov, the famous writer in Sacred Fire, once wrote, he said that life is so full of surprises. Why should we be surprised when death is too? And so the assumption that we can in some way impart an understanding in terms of what it is I think is the first mistake that we make. But I'll, but I'll finish with this idea. And that is, I suspect that this entire conversation on this evening will come down to a debate on this particular issue. And that is, are we only stuff? If we're only stuff, then when we die, it dies too. But if you're inclined to believe, as I am, as I have always believed, as long as I could believe in something, that we are something more than what we see, then the idea that that thing which we can't see would exist beyond what we can no longer see makes eminent sense. So when my father passed away a few years ago, and the Jewish tradition is, is that we place earth on the casket before the funeral is completed, I thought long that that would be one of the most difficult moments. And in truth, after I, as I was doing and after I did it, I realized it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be because I knew that my father really wasn't there. That it was him, but he wasn't really there. So to answer your question, I hope so. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So I, I have a ton of questions already. But we'll continue with Justin. Justin Trottier, he is the communications director of the Center 
the National Communications Director for the Center for Inquiry uh, Canada, which is one of the country's leading national educational charities advancing science and secularism. Um, Justin is also a public speaker and has been a, regu has been a regular on various TV programs uh, as a guest. He's also a columnist and has been a contributor to the National Post and the Globe and Mail's uh, online editions. Um, currently, he appears regularly on the John Oakley Show on Toronto's AM640 and on the Rob Breckenridge Show on Calgary, Calgary's AM770 radio. So, Justin, <coughs> your opening statements. No question. <laughs> I can ask you the same question if you like. Probably better if you don't set me up. Um, I, I wanted to open with a quote, and I won't tell you who the quote's from until I'm done because it might bias your subsequent uh, reflections on, on these words. So here's the quote, we are gonna die, and that makes us the lucky ones. Most people are never going to die because they are never going to be born. The potential people who could have been here in my place, but who will in fact never see the light of day, outnumber the sand grains of Arabia. Certainly those unborn ghosts include greater poets than Keats, scientists greater than Newton. We know this because the set of possible people allowed by our DNA so massively exceeds the set of actual people. In the teeth of these stupefying odds, it is you and I in our ordinariness that are here. This little gem, I think, was, uh, was actually said by Richard Dawkins, the rather notorious atheist, uh, in his book on weaving the rainbow. It's kind of a poetry to science. I thought it was good to open with him because uh, he more than anybody else has probably been told to go to hell a lot, of, a lot of times, so even more than me. So I thought that that was fitting. Um, now, I'm no expert on the afterlife. I don't know that anybody really is. But I think how you answer this particular question really does inform your answers to many questions here below on Earth. And I want to reflect on a comment by the well-known secular activist and author of Infidel, Ayan Hirsi Ali, who said that if you believe in an afterlife, you tend to focus your efforts on acquiring its entrance criteria. And that's where you tend to invest your time and your energy and your effort. I don't think there's any evidence for an afterlife. I think the eternity that, eternity that follows your death is probably going to resemble the eternity that um, was here before we were all born. I don't think we can be aware of the existence or non-existence of an afterlife. So I don't think there's any way to tell which afterlife, if any of them, is correct, whether it's the Jewish afterlife or the Catholic or the Muslim or the Hindu or the Protestant or any of the others, or maybe the Mormon version, which is quite different, which involves many, many different planets, and your planetary heaven depends on how you measure up after you've died. I think when you look at that variety of afterlives, though, we have to ask ourselves an honest question, whether we don't create heaven in our own image of paradise. For example, Valhalla, the famous heaven, or pseudo-heaven, I suppose, for the Norse, was created to reflect and reinforce the hero and warrior mentality that was prized by that particular civilization. And perhaps the Catholic view and many other views were created to appeal to people, um, especially the poor, the marginalized, who like the idea that the wicked might receive their just desserts in the afterlife. I think that's a critical question we do have to confront. But there are other questions too about meaning and purpose and whether life without meaning has no meaning if it is finite. I don't think that that which is without meaning can be infused with purpose simply because it exists for an extended or an infinite amount of time. As atheist and philosopher Ian Williams has put it, there's no desirable or significant property which life would have more of if we lasted forever. And others have commented in a similar vein. But I'm also not convinced, as 
some atheists are, that death gives life meaning. I'm not sure about that. Instead, I think we have to find our meaning, our meaning somewhere else entirely. I don't think meaning's either created or destroyed by the mere reality of a, a finite or an infinite existence. There are paradoxes I hope we can get, in, get into in different framings of an afterlife. The concept, for example, of eternal bliss. The idea of eternal happiness may imply, in some interpretations, a state without change, but that could mean no challenges, no opportunities for learning and growth. A life in any single state, even pure ecstasy, may be unbearable. Another paradox is caused because some interpretations of heaven suggest or are premised on a form of mandatory love and acceptance of God. But if that's the case, I have to ask, if happiness is premised on a forced love, is that a genuine kind of happiness or love that any of us would want to, uh, that would want to go to in the end after our lives? And of course, another question for those of us who are interested in evolutionary science is where exactly in that uh, evolutionary ladder does the soul or the, uh, the afterlife actually get introduced into the emerging Homo sapien species. But I do want to conclude on a rather positive note, which is that while I think we can all go through life, or many of us can go through life, never really reflecting on deep philosophical and ethical questions, which is unfortunate, I don't think anybody in this room, or really in any rooms, have not given considerable thought to the question of their own mortality and what, if anything, will happen to them after they die. So I think this is a uniquely important question, and I'm glad to be uh, here to share that discussion with uh, my distinguished panelists. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. I'm Pedro Guevara Mann, and we're listening to a panel discussion on the afterlife with Rabbi Aaron Flansreich, Father Thomas Rosica, and Justin Trottier from the Beth Shalom Synagogue in Toronto. We've heard opening statements from Rabbi Flansreich and Justin Trottier. Now, Father Rosica will address the audience. Father Thomas Rosica is a Catholic priest. He is the Chief Executive Officer at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation, the crew that is filming this event tonight. Um, Father Tom is also a scripture scholar. Uh, he served as executive director and pastor of the Newman Center Catholic Mission at the University of Toronto before becoming the national director for World Youth Day 2002, which you might recall when Pope John Paul II came to Toronto. Uh, for over 10 years, Father Tom represented the Canadian bishops on the Canadian Christian Jewish consultation. Um, and in February 2009, Pope Benedict XVI appointed him to be a consultor to the Pontifical Council for Social Communications of the Vatican. Um, Father Tom is also an author and columnist uh, for various publications, including the Toronto Sun, uh, the Zenit International News Service, and L'Osservatore Romano newspaper in the Vatican. Um, so, Father Tom, your opening statements. Welcome. When I think about heaven, it's not a matter of a waiting room down here, and we're all trying to fill um, an application and check off the list of how many points we get, sort of like Immigration Canada, when you want to move to a country. So I'm not filling out a form. But there's a scriptural story, which kind of remains in my mind as an iconic story of what heaven is all about. It's at the end of Luke's Gospel and at the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, which were also written by Luke, the ascension has just taken place. So Jesus has just risen up to heaven from the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, and he leaves behind a group of guys that are kind of shocked. And they're standing there, awestruck, you know, this, their master, their leader, their friend is taken from them. And all of a sudden, this voice of the angel comes and says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking up to the heavens? This Jesus, this Lord of yours, is going to return just as he promised. That, for me, says an awful lot about the reality of heaven 
but also about our reality here on earth. What it says is that if we spend all of our time with our eyes and our heart set on some distant reality, we might miss the many opportunities that exist here to find God among us. In other words, heaven is not just some geographical location at the end, but it also is a state of mind, a state of living, and a state of being of how we are here. I did my undergraduate studies in French, French language. I remember reading the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. It's not the most inspiring author, but he's got one line which always stuck out with me. L'enfer, c'est les autres. Hell is other people. And we can all associate with that at different moments in our life, perhaps in larger doses at different moments. But I'd also like to think as a Christian, le ciel, c'est les autres. Heaven is also in other people. We catch glimpses on a daily basis in the people with whom we are in contact of what this heavenly reality is. In Catholicism and Christianity, we speak about heaven as being the beatific vision, the full vision of God. In other words, here below, we have glimpses of what that wonderful reality can be. We have these paradisical, parad paradisia paradisiacal visions of what heaven could be by the very people where heaven could be my wife. I'm not married, but it could be. It could be your wife. Heaven could be in my children. Heaven could be my mother-in-law. Imagine. Heaven can be all of these. We catch glimpses of that. And the heavenly reality at the end of our lives is the compilation, the fullness of all of those things we live for and long for. So for us as Catholics and Christians, heaven is this deep longing, this completion. St. Augustine, the great philosopher, the great theologian of the fourth century, says, our hearts are restless. You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And therefore, we catch glimpses, and there's this deep longing inside of each of us to be with God, to be caught up in this wonderful embrace. And our, our whole lives are this longing to be with God. But it does not mean we, we obliterate or we forget the realities and the demands that are here below. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to start with a question to all three, um, but I'd like to remind you that at any time, just wave your hands, write some questions down, and we can send them over. Um, Justin brought this up, and it was also a, a point that came up through some of the messages that we've been receiving during the day uh, through Facebook and on our website, and it has to do with our behavior in this life. So since you brought it up, actually, I'll maybe start with you, but I'll let Father Tom and Rabbi, if you can also respond. So is our behavior in this life directly related to what will happen to us in the afterlife? And if not, then why worry about our behavior in this life at all? Yeah, I think those are two quite different questions. Um, I'm not going to comment on other traditions, but yeah, yeah. certainly there is some traditions in which you're judged very closely on, on many of your ethical decisions. Uh, it's interesting if you look at the history of religion that we kind of take it for granted that there's always been this ethical component, but religion's pre-axial age, which is sort of pre-500 BC or so, put a lot more emphasis on a sort of ritual appeasement and stuff like that. Then there's a shift towards this ethical component where we're seen as actors in a cosmic battle. Mm -hmm. uh, Zoroastrianism, for example, is uh, one of the older religions that, that moves in this kind of, in this kind of direction. Uh, so in this sense, we become a, a vital player in, in God's battle with evil throughout eternity. Um, and as a participant in that, 
cosmic war, um, our actions are carefully monitored and our ethical decisions, rather than just their consequences, become extremely important as far as um, how we play into this drama and eventually where our own souls end up. Uh, but to your second question, whether or not you know, we, we would be uh, good or bad if... Reward or punishment. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, I think, so I, just to kind of go from that answer to, to this second question, um, if you look at the connection between religion and morality, um, there are certainly arguments that the two go together, but there are also pretty compelling arguments that you, you, religion alone cannot ground a, a moral decision. You know, Plato in, in various dialogues makes this point uh, that it isn't enough to just make a decision to do, to do one thing or another based on a commandment. Commandment morality is kind of problematic. You need to decide for yourself and make that existential decision. And I think we all do that. So I think whether we believe or we don't believe in various scriptures, on a day-to-day -day basis, we're much more pragmatic about our decisions. They have to do with, uh, you know, the consequences of our actions and our um, connection with other people and our desire not to hurt others. And those are all human connections, ultimately. Mm -hmm. So I think in reality, we're, we're not really reflecting on whether we're going to go to heaven or hell. I think it's more about how we interact with our fellow beings. And in that sense, you know, an atheist or a humanist is just as likely to make uh, the same kind of moral decisions as, uh, right. as a religious believer. Yeah. Um, I'll, uh, if I can just follow up, and I, I was going to let you go ahead, because in the, in the Torah, for example, the book of Deuteronomy will say that uh, you know, if you keep my commandments, you will enter into the promised land. And maybe that idea of promised land, I don't think the Torah ever mentions the heaven. But you no, can correct, correct me if I'm wrong. No, so, yeah. so in terms of keeping my commandments, and again, Justin mentioned this, so how does that in your tradition uh, relate to reward for behavior? Well, uh, the, the Russian writer Chekhov once said that when they don't have a cure for a disease, they give you many medicines. So the fact that there are so many different ideas surrounding what heaven might or might not be is an indication, as the famous, you know, the joke goes, no one's ever come back to tell us. And so the reality is, is that we engage in a degree of speculation. From my perspective, it's um, faithful speculation. But this, um, one of the reasons why in the, in the entire five books of Moses, the Torah, there is no mention of either heaven or hell. And it's quite remarkable when you, when you consider that ancient traditions, as Justin pointed out, that they were very focused on obedience, on um, the pacification of the person to maintain the rigidity and allegiance, um, that there is no notion of that. And what's even more interesting is, is that Judaism as a whole, even for thousands of years, has been so completely and utterly engaged in real-worldism about how we make this life and this world better. And some simple examples can prove the point to us. You know, the old expression is, is that wherever Jews go, they do two things. They build schools and hospitals. So much so that even Maimonides, who was a great rabbinic scholar, philosopher, and a, and a uh, physician, uh, he once codified in his laws, based upon a Talmudic ruling, that it is forbidden for a Jew to live somewhere where there isn't a doctor or a hospital because you must care for the living. We do not postulate that you have to live your life with one eye geared always across the sunset to heaven. There's two notions surrounding this. One notion is, do you bring the earth to heaven? The other notion is, do you bring the heaven to earth? The Jewish argument is, we can bring heaven down here. 
we can create this world in terms of what it could be. And so, the word, remember I shared with you the word, the name for heaven in Hebrew? I said it was Olam Haba, which literally means the world to come. But according to the Sephorno, who was a Spanish commentator who lived in the 15th century, he said what it really means is what this world will become when people are aware of what they do. And so by that reckoning, we can indeed make a dent upon what this world is. And if I can just say one thing about what Justin commented on, that I believe that there is a profound difference in the enacted morality as a general rule between people who are steeped in a faithful tradition and people who aren't. And the difference is, I think, as history has shown us, that when the backs are to the wall, there must be a reservoir of faith to convince you to make the right decisions. When you look at history, you will see that the most devastating, cruel, horrific moments in human history have been the past hundred years when secularism has run rampant. More people have died over the past hundred years in these secular wars of the Crimean Wars, the Thirty Year Wars, the First World War, the Second World War, the Stalinist purges, than any kind of notion that you can make an argument in terms of what religion has done. And so there is a, I believe, a profound difference in the morality of people in those moments. And as it's often said, that a crisis does not create character as it reveals it. Yeah. I'll let you respond if you want to, but I wanted to just let Father Tom also respond. Uh, this idea of, of bringing heaven to earth or bringing earth to heaven, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's also closer to the Christian idea that some people might think that the Christian idea, again, has to do with reward and punishment, but it, that's not as, as simple as that, correct? Absolutely not. You know, there's two thoughts that come to mind listening to my colleagues here. We have a saint in the Catholic tradition, somebody called St. Therese of Lisieux. They know her as the Little Flower. She's a recent doctor of the church. She died at the age of 24 in a Carmelite monastery. She's the patroness of the world mission. She never left the monastery, imagine that. But she said as she was suffering with tuberculosis at the end of her life, I want to spend my heaven doing good on earth. It's one of those sayings that's given to us as Catholic kids and growing up, it kind of sticks with us. My heaven is going to be spent doing good on earth. The second thing about this reward and punishment thing, in the Catholic tradition, in the Christian scriptures themselves, yes, we are encouraged to have a good ethical moral life based on the Jewish tradition, based on the Hebrew scriptures. But there's always this little escape clause at the end, what we call deathbed conversions. One of the most upsetting scenes in the scriptures is Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying in Luke's gospel. He's got these two thugs on either side of him, two criminals. And, you know, they're teasing him and, and jeering him. And one of them says, wait a minute, this guy didn't do anything wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. I know people that are furious with Jesus over that whole thing. I mean, here are, here's a guy who was a thief, a brigand, a terrible person all of his life. And not only is he, he given salvation, but he follows Jesus. They go up to heaven the same day. What that tells us is, yes, we are encouraged to have a good ethical life, a good moral upright life. But ultimately, it's God who determines the quality of conversion at the end. Because what is our life? It's a whole series of these small yeses that we're invited to say throughout our life. 
Do you accept me? Do you follow me? Do you accept my word? And hopefully it's all those small yeses which will give us the courage and the wisdom to say the final yes when we stand before God and God says, do you love me? Hey, you want to be here? And all of those small yeses will help us with the final yes. But at the same time, at times there are some individuals who have said no for an awful long time. But when they're struck with such love and such goodness, such holiness, such otherness in the person of God, they will choose God in the end as well. That's very mysterious. It doesn't fit with our business management calculations. But ultimately, it's about a God who is, in the Hebrew sense and in the, the Christian sense, a God who's full of, he's chesed, full of mercy. And this is absolutely essential to our understanding of heaven and the way we live here on this earth. Do you want to respond, yeah, Justin? Sure. Um, I guess I have a couple of responses, but I guess first to the point about uh, the secular wars. I've never heard of them referred to that way. I'm not sure they were wars over secularism. They may have been wars that weren't about religion, but that doesn't mean that they're to be blamed on atheism. Um, we can debate for some time, and I think scholars and historians keep debating uh, whether uh, some of the most notorious fascist dictators of the last century were believers or not. I think there's certainly compelling arguments that, that they were. Um, perhaps there are arguments that, that, that they weren't. I think what's clear, though, is that, without naming any names, they were... Um, on, they, they weren't consistent. Um, there were lots of things, for example, that Hitler said, which suggested that uh, his regime was infused with a kind of faith, a perverted one, of course, but nevertheless a faith in something. Um, so, so you can't just generalize that every atrocity in the last hundred years was committed by the faithless. That, that's as ridiculous as me sitting here suggesting that religion's responsible for, for, uh, for more, for, for all the atrocities of, of uh, say, the Middle Ages. Um, but speaking of the Middle Ages, certainly uh, there was a religious component to many of the atrocities that were committed. And I, I bring that up, for example, the Crusades, because we can have a civilized conversation about modern interpretations of heaven and hell, although I would make the ironic observation that our modern debates about whether heaven or hell is in other people or is all around us or is in experiences we have with each other, that's kind of a, a modern idea. It would seem it's a, it's a, I would say, the influence of humanism uh, that has humanized the concept of heaven and hell. Uh, let me tell you, in the Crusades, in that period of the Middle Ages, heaven and hell were seen very literally. And the idea that you could get, uh, you could get indulgences from the Catholic Church if you went off on crusade uh, was a big deal to people because they were very, very frightened about what would happen to their body after they died. So the punishment was quite real. Um, and we can talk about why that view of heaven and hell has changed, uh, why many concepts in religion evolve with time. Uh, that's something that, I, that we might get into. Uh, but I think even in the modern period, there are many terrorists who are motivated by a very literal interpretation of punishment and uh, rewards in heaven or hell. So we can have a very civilized conversation of um, uh, what our interpretation of heaven or hell ought to be, but I don't think we can forget that throughout history, and to many people in the modern world, there are very literal interpretations, and they have catastrophic implications in many cases. You're listening to Salt and Light Radio. I'm Pedro Guevara Man. Our program can be heard at saltandlighttv.org radio. Today we're listening to a panel discussion that I hosted from the Beth Shalom Synagogue in Toronto on the topic of the afterlife. Our three panelists, Rabbi Flansreich, Justin Trottier and Father Rosica have addressed questions about our behavior in this life, and now we take a question from one of our online viewers. Well, let me uh, follow up then by asking you, and this is actually a question that came in earlier uh, through Facebook. Um, 
and it is a question to a rabbi. I don't know if the, the person who sent it is, is, is Jewish. Um, and it is about, he, he says, hell, purgatory. That's not, I don't know if purgatory is a Jewish concept, but the afterlife. Are they ev even mentioned in the Pentateuch? And you already said that they are, they're not. But I guess my question would be, so where do these ideas, uh, as we understand them today, and maybe uh, we're kind of trying to figure it out still, but how did they, according to your tradition, where did these ideas start being formalized as we understand them in Judaism right now and in Christianity right now um, in terms of, I mean, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is with, um, in, the, in the midst of you or within us. What does that mean? So maybe if we can start with you sure. and then Father Tom. Um, the, the, the notions of an afterlife uh, are deeply tied to um, what's called uh, eschatology, which is uh, notions of the end of days, what happens to us when uh, time kind of runs out. And uh, I think in many respects, if you can, uh, I cautioned you about um, being overly literal when we think of these things. You know, it's like what Mark Twain wrote in Letters from Earth. He said, uh, when people speak of heaven, they think of lying on green grass and playing harps all day long. Because in this world, you wouldn't want to do it for five minutes. But for some reason, you think when you die, you'd want to do it for eternity. Don't forget about eating cream cheese. And eating cream cheese, yes. yes. Um, the, the developments in terms of the notions of an afterlife um, intensely began to develop about uh, two and a quarter, about 2,000, 2,200 years ago. And a lot of it had to do with a culmination of a host of issues, um, some both real-world political and some of them had to do with the uh, encroaching of other philosophies and awarenesses upon Judaism. But Maimonides said something so interesting about an afterlife. He said that notions of heaven or hell, which um, in, in Judaism are not very distinct notions, by the way. Um, in Latter-day uh, Latter interpretations and traditions, uh, we don't turn around and say that you make a left if you've done good and you make a right if you've done bad. Maimonides suggested this. He said, imagine that after you lose your body, if you haven't spent your life engaged with spirituality, with dealing and addressing those things that are outside of yourself, when you lose your body, what must that be like? And he said, that's hellish. If all you've done with your life is only satisfy your physical urges, if you've ignored anything spiritual in your life, then when your body is taken from you, you won't know how to survive. On the other hand, though, if you have connected your life to those things of meaning outside of yourself, when you lose your body, although it is painful, you're accustomed to an inner life of connecting and being aware of something that is beyond you. And this idea as well of um, alternate realities is something that Einstein spoke deeply about in his theory of relativity, where past, present, and future all live around us at the same time. And for people who have lost people they love, you feel the presence of that person with you. You can't explain it. But on some level, you know that they're there too. And Einstein would say, you're right, because they are. The past, present, and future all mix in some ways. If I could just say one thing with what, um, to what Justin said, and that is um, there, are, you know, there are always two different approaches to religion. There are people who have unsophisticated 
uh, churlish notions of it, and there are people who have sophisticated and subtle approaches to it. I do not believe in an unsophisticated and churlish approach to it, so I don't want to uh, engage or apologize for people who believe in that kind of religion. My notion of religion would never ever put anybody to death because God commanded me, or I thought God commanded me, or because they would be at heaven somewhere. I would utterly reject those notions from my religious vocabulary. Thank you. Father Tom? You know, I think when we're growing up, uh, I came to know or understand better the reality of heaven only after having heard about the reality of hell. Uh, it's much easier to use the images of hell, of uh, punishment, of the flames, the fire, the red devil, to scare people. And then the more, at least in our tradition, the more we get to know the reality of Jesus and his message and this whole teaching on the, the kingdom of God being among us, then we begin to see heaven not just a place where there are little uh, roly-poly angels and uh, nice clouds and harp music, which would drive some people nuts. Um, heaven is also much related to how we are here on earth. Let me just share a couple of thoughts with you. Every man and every woman has his personal heaven, his idea or her idea of heaven, because all of us are created in the image and the likeness of God. And for us as Christians, we cannot envision or understand or begin to grasp the reality of heaven apart from the person of Jesus Christ. He's our Lord, he's our Savior, he lived in time. We can localize where he lived, what he did, and also at the end, he promised his disciples they will not be left orphans. He's going to send something among us to hold this reality together. We call that the Holy Spirit. Now here, here is what I understand heaven to be. It's the holiness of God, the brand of God, the mark of God personalized, embodied in every one of our life. We're marked, we're sealed, and there's this longing that's there. And so this longing, which makes us become more like God. And that takes place for most of us in life, hopefully in life. We catch glimpses, as I said at the beginning. My question is, how do we respond to the desire of heaven that's there? Because it's not just an idea, but there's this desire. And when there's a desire, we have a choice to either ignore it or to respond to it. Now, we do not limit ourselves to looking for heaven only in nice, warm, good, healthy, life-giving relationships with other human beings, as good and as important they would be as they are. These relationships are important, and we have to see them as invitations. But ultimately, the idea of heaven and the afterlife and of paradise has much to do with how we see ourselves in relation to God. Do we accept God? I, I don't know. Justin can answer this better. I find it a mystery, a real mystery, is those who don't know God, those who don't have a relationship with God, what happens at the end? It, it, that remains a mysterious thing. And I've asked many of my friends who are atheists or claim to be atheists, I'm not sure that there is an atheist, but I asked many of my friends, what does it mean to live here below without some relationship of, of some kind with a God who's constantly beckoning, beckoning us to go forward and to see more than what meets the eye. The other thing too, a story that I, we heard as kids, which kind of remained with me, um, heaven and hell, the image of heaven and hell is basically the same image. It's, it's basically two dining rooms and there's two big banquet tables. And when you go to the image of hell, you see the banquet table, the sumptuous meal, and the silverware, the utensils, are six feet long each. 
and the people are trying to feed themselves and the food's going all over the place and they're starving and there's misery and whatever that's associated with that kind of a scene. Heaven is the same scene. Banquet table, sumptuous spray of, spread of food, sort of like a, a bar mitzvah party afterwards. And then the silverware is also six feet long, except in heaven, the people are feeding each other. The food's not going all over the place. There's a mutuality, a receptivity, a sharing, and a generosity. And that's always stuck with me because it has a lot to do with how we're living here below and what determines our state ultimately in the end. Are we going to be in misery by trying to feed ourselves and ultimately starve? Or are we going to be concerned with other people? Um, well, Justin, since Father Tom asked, and I don't know if you actually wanted him to answer, but, I'd love to hear and you. I didn't ask you at the beginning, but so what will happen? What do you think will happen when you die? Not too much, um, but let me just address <laughs> a couple of responses. I, I did have a few responses I wanted to make, yeah, um, yeah. And, and let me add that to my long list. I'll get to that. Um, I guess we can kind of conclude our little back and forth there, because I think we can agree that there are sophisticated and unsophisticated versions of, of, of religion and certainly of atheism. And I wasn't too, trying to imply that there aren't bad atheists, just simply that it was a crass generalization on, on, every, on anybody's part to suggest that whether you believe or you don't believe necessarily implies that you are going to be a, a super person or a super horrible person. Um, I, I think we can agree that I, I would not want a, a theocratic regime. I would also not want an atheistic regime. Actually, for the record, I, I favor church-state separation. You can get into the nuances of that, but essentially that's neutrality um, with respect to, to belief or, or, or non-belief. Um, so, so as to uh, different regimes, yes, they can be guilty of, of, of very bad things. Um, none of us are here to defend those. Uh, but I did want to speak, I did want to make sort of a, a, a critical comment and then maybe a, a more positive one. Um, you referred to some metaphors, Einstein, etc. I just want to point out that, that that particular metaphor, if we took that, if we took that to, to its, its logical conclusion, actually the conclusion Einstein himself had, the idea that past, present, and future were, were all laid out before us, that is, that is a, a fair um, description of Einstein's beliefs. But, but he would see that as indicating a deterministic universe. And in a deterministic universe where past, present, and future already exist, there is no opportunity for choice. And without choice, uh, one cannot be judged, however you want to define judgment. And it kind of makes heaven and hell uh, uh, a bit of a joke, the idea that you're already predetermined as to what your, op your, your choices are, and therefore where you end up, where you end up going. Um, so I, I'm not sure that metaphor, need, would, you would want to push that uh, too far. Um, but you asked about spirituality and sort of uh, when, when all is said and done, I guess this kind of gets to your, to your question to some extent as well. Uh, uh, what, would an atheist, uh, what would an atheist do if they had spent their whole life without, without being spiritual? Well, whenever the, question spir or the concept of spirituality comes up, I, I feel like that is an important debate to have in and of itself before we just assume the atheist isn't spiritual and then make you know, conclusions based on that. Because I think that's a, that's a huge and an interesting question. Um, and I think if you define spirituality in certain ways, then I think I would consider myself and many atheists as well spiritual. Because I sense that I have a deep connection to the universe. Uh, I understand um, because I'd like to follow you know, the insights of science, whether it's evolutionary science or astronomical science, how connected we are to other forms of life, how connected we are to the universe at large, the fact, for example, to pull from another famous scientist, Carl Sagan, who talked about star, how we're all star stuff. 
yes, I always have to refer to Sagan at least once in, in all of my public talks. Uh, big fan of Carl Sagan, not, a gr not just a great scientist, but a great science popularizer and an astronomer. And he would always talk about how the stuff of, of life, the complicated um, uh, atoms that are in our bodies are created in the deaths of stars when they go supernova. So that is an astounding observation. And in appreciating that, which is only possible when we have a deep understanding of science and, and nature, uh, we understand how interconnected we are. So if that's a kind of spirituality, the awe and wonder and majesty of the universe that that kind of deep understanding really gives us, then in that sense, I am spiritual. And um, you know, if I were before God uh, at the end of my life and, and he were to ask me to account for my spirituality, I would be very proud to refer to uh, that, that kind of deep understanding that I have uh, to the universe out there, which, which you do not need to uh, have any kind of faith or belief in God or gods. The concept of faith, by the way, we kind of take it for granted that, uh, that faith is, is this great thing and it makes us uh, deserving of, in and of itself of, of entrance to a glorious afterlife. I'm not, I'm not sure why, to be honest. Uh, we can also debate about what faith even means, but just the idea that you believe something because it's there, uh, because it's part of tradition, because it's in scripture, because it's what's handed down to you. I'm not sure why that in and of itself is a virtue. I'd like to, I'd like to hear some comments because, of course, faith is kind of at the center of, of the debate about the afterlife. If you have faith and you're seen as spiritual, then you, then you go to, uh, to some glorious place or other. Um, and your, what was your question about just in general how I can be an atheist? I, I'm not, I'm not sure what, how to answer that. I am an atheist. I don't like people telling me what I am or what I'm not. And I think that's enough of an answer, quite frankly. There are about a quarter of Canadians who are atheists and agnostics. And when surveyors ask them if they believe in God, they say no or I'm not sure, which qualifies them as an atheist and agnostic. And I don't think they need to answer uh, any, any much beyond that. I'm Pedro Guevara Mann. This is a special Salt and Light Radio from the Beth Shalom Synagogue in Toronto of a panel discussion titled Heaven, A View from Earth with Rabbi Aaron Flansreich, Father Thomas Rosica, and atheist Justin Trottier, each talking about their personal beliefs and what their faith traditions teach about the afterlife. We continue now with a question from one of our audience members. And it's for those of you who believe in some sort of life afterlife. Uh, I don't know if it's all three of you or not. Um, but what do you think happens to our souls after this life ends? And then as a qualifier, do you believe that souls are recycled? So I guess there's a question about reincarnation, which is another question that came in uh, about reincarnation, i.e. will our souls return to this world in a different body? And there was another question that came in uh, through the internet that relates to it in, in the sense, and it's, a, it's I think for Catholics, um, the Catholics believe that our resurrected body will be a perfected body and what that means. So maybe if we can kind of take those three ideas and put them together in brief answers. <laughs> one minute or you less. You should be a shul president. Um, so, so what do we think happens uh, to our souls after we die? Are they recycled? How does reincarnation maybe fit or not fit in there? And this idea of, of perf perfected, our bodies will be perfected. I don't know if that falls into your tradition as well. So yeah, um, uh, just go So uh, the notions of... Um, uh, Gilgul in Hebrew, which is a Kabbalistic notion of reincarnation, is certainly in the, um, in the body of, uh, of Jewish tradition. You know, the thing is, is that, you know, the Jewish tradition is over 3,500 years old, which is another way of saying you could pretty much find anything in it. So, um, you know, when you have a tradition that's been around long enough, eventually someone's going to say something about something. 
As a general rule uh, about the afterlife, I mean, I think we've covered a fair amount of ground to appreciate and understand. Um, it hinges upon uh, this notion of um, do I believe or do I accept that there's something beyond what I can see? And uh, one of the remarkable things, and Justin, I think, wonderfully touched upon it, is having a faith tradition, the strength of a faith tradition, is not that it automatically makes me a good person. It certainly doesn't. But what a faith tradition gives me, it gives me a body of tradition to walk in the footstep of other people, to give me proven ways of understanding the challenges that life can present to me. And so in the, in the lexicon of Judaism, when people go through hard times or good times, we have a tradition to draw upon in which, in which that humans express things, but we do it in a Jewish way. Um, the notions of uh, what's called in Hebrew, which is this, re, uh, this re, uh, reanimation mm -hmm. of life. Maimonides said uh, very, very clearly in a letter that he had written um, that anybody who sees that literally, that thinks that the body is going to be popping out of the earth, he said it's absolute folly. Right. But some people might misunderstand the Christian idea, Father, about the resurrection of the body. Can you explain that a little bit? In the Catholic tradition, the Christian theology, it's a theology of incarnation and not reincarnation. Incarnation in that at one moment in history, the word becomes flesh and dwells among us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That's the incarnation. Therefore, we have an incarnational faith, not a reincarnational one. And why, why do we not teach the, the reincarnation? Is that there's a uniqueness, a specialness, absolute one-time-only production of each of us. That each person is so unique that we're not going to come back in the form of a duck or a tree or somebody else because God has so much love and, and his mark is on each and every individual human being. That's awesome when you stop and think of that. The whole idea of the reincarnation, and there are people who believe in that kind of, of, of a thought, that I'm going to come back in another form, I'm going to come back as a cow, I'm going to come back as this, it doesn't jive with our particular theology, our tradition for Christians and for Jews. Yeah. And I could say for Muslims as well. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't work with us. Now that being said, what about this uniqueness in every single human being? That, that tells us that we have a God that's eminently creative, eminently creative. God who, who doesn't get stuck with a particular model, but is constantly coming up with new brands, new versions. What kind of a God is that? It's pretty cool, you know, when you stop and think about it, that over the centuries, there's no two people the same. That tells us a lot about God and his concern for each and every individual's uniqueness. Yeah. Um, I might, in case, in, no, but I was just going to say, and to, to add to you, and maybe I have misunderstood you, but you don't believe that there's an afterlife. So how, does, do you, if you well, did, would reincarnation be part of that? Or do you, like, I'm still not sure where you stand in uh, terms of what will happen when you die. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I guess I'm an agnostic on that and, and many things. So if you did, would an idea like reincarnation make sense to you? There's no more evidence for reincarnation than there is for the other varieties of afterlife. But I am interested in the topic. That's why I'm here. And it's, in, yeah. it's quite fascinating to me that there is so much diversity. You know, you were saying the Jewish tradition is 3,500 years old. There's a lot of diversity there. And then you add in the many, many other traditions that are available in the world. And any kind of idea about what could happen or could not happen after we die is available. 
And I think it's interesting that it happens to be you know, available within a culture for which that kind of version of an afterlife suits the culture, suits the very earthly embodiment of the culture. There's a definite correlation there. And it's interesting as well how the notion of an afterlife doesn't just change between cultures, it also changes within time. We all have a much more nuanced, sophisticated, to use your word, view of the afterlife than I think the ancients did, or that, as I argued earlier, that they did in the Middle Ages. To me, it's, it seems fairly obvious that there's a humanness to our, connect, to, our, to our view of the afterlife, and I think that's quite interesting, and so that's why I'm here to to represent the humanist <laughs> sort of uh, understanding of or interest in this particular topic. Thank you. Um, that's all the time we have for questions, but I will close by allowing each of our three panelists to do a, a brief closing statement before we move into the hall for some dessert. But we'll go in reverse this time. If you start with Father Tom and we'll leave the last word with Rabbi. Heaven is not something static. Even our own imagination does not understand it as something static. It's a continuous happening. It's a great event, a growth that advances with our own call and our own growth in life and our deficiencies themselves, which become ways in helping us to long for heaven and to long to be with God. Thank you, Justin. Thank you. It was a pleasure to share uh, the stage with my distinguished co-panelists. Um, as I said, I sort of gave a unique interpretation to a lot of the questions because, you know, I start from the premise that I don't see evidence for any of those kinds of afterlives that we've been discussing and debating. But I think life itself is special, and I think if we fail to appreciate how special it is um, by, by looking beyond it for salvation or for meaning, uh, then we don't do justice uh, to uh, the intrinsic uh, specialness of life. And that, you know, I think we all agree to that off the bat, so there was no dis dispute about the importance of, of living this life to the fullest. I'm afraid um, there wasn't enough time to get into all the paradoxes that I kind of threw at the end. Those are good uh, fodder for philosophical speculation, so I'll let you do your own after this event uh, about whose heaven we would be going into or about where in the evolutionary heritage of our species, the soul or the, after, or the ability to get into an afterlife, where does that originate? Um, I did want to conclude, though, with um, a quote from uh, Wittgenstein, a philosopher from earlier last century. And what he says is, not only is there no guarantee of the immortality of the human soul, but in any case, this assumption completely fails to accomplish the purpose for which it's always been intended. For if some riddle solved by my surviving... For... for it, sorry, I screwed this up. For, sorry, for is some riddle solved by my surviving forever? He's asking a question there is not this eternal life itself as much of a riddle as our present life. So if you're looking for solving a riddle, or you're trying to understand meaning and purpose, and that's a great riddle, of course, you can't really look to an afterlife. That's my interpretation of that particular quote. This life is a riddle, and the only way to try to get at that mystery is by all of us working together through perhaps debates like this to understand a little bit deeper uh, the mystery of existence that we all happen to share. And I'm glad that I was able to share this particular experience tonight. So thank you. Thank you, Justin. Rabbi? So first I want to thank uh, Father Tom and Justin. It was just wonderful for you to share. Pedro, thank you so much. And for all of you who are attending, uh, for those of you who have uh, heard me speak in the past, you know that I have a, a particular penchant in love um, for one particular uh, person. There's a, a host of menu of people that I do enjoy, but one who I quote often, and that is uh, Viktor Frankl. And uh, Dr. Frankl was a survivor of the camps. Uh, he went on to a remarkable career in uh, psychoanalysis, uh, developing a particular strain called logotherapy. And uh, he recounts in one of his books called uh, The Doctor and the Soul, 
uh, a conversation that he had with a student of his. Uh, and the student uh, says to him that he had cut the human brain down uh, to, the, to a micron level and put it underneath a, um, a, um, a microscope. And he said that he had never seen any proof of a soul. And so Dr. Frankel looks at him and says, the fact that you were looking for it is the proof of it. And so on some level, the fact that we're all here looking for the answers that we know don't completely exist is the proof on some level that we believe that it exists. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And thank you, absolutely. Our three panelists, Father Thomas Rosica of Salt and Light Television, and a special thank you for the film crew that is here providing the live webcast at saltandlighttv.org, Justin Trottier, and Rabbi Aaron Flansreich. I'm sorry that we didn't get to all the questions, but that means that the conversation will continue in the other room. And if you're watching us online, continue the conversation on Facebook. It's amazing the conversations that can happen through social networking. So thank you for being with us, and uh, I'll see you in heaven. Not too soon. <laughs> that concludes the special edition of Salt and Light Radio that was recorded live at the Beth Shalom Synagogue in Toronto in March 2012 with our three panelists, Rabbi Aaron Flansreich, Justin Trottier, and Father Thomas Rosica. If you'd like to comment on what you heard today on our program, please write to us, radio at saltandlighttv.org. If you missed any portion of this program or to listen to any other Salt and Light Radio programs, you can download the podcast for free off iTunes or visit us at saltandlighttv.org slash radio. If you're interested in watching the video of the full panel discussion, you can watch it at saltandlighttv.org slash heaven. Salt and Light Radio is part of the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation dedicated to bring light to the world through media. Check it all out at saltandlighttv.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Pedro Guevara Man, and this has been a special edition of Salt and Light Radio.